Revelations 19:11 through 16. Et apartum, et eke ecus albus, et qui sedebat super eum, vocabatur fidelis et verax, et cum justitia judicat et pugnat. Oculi autem eius secut flama ignis, et in capite eius diademata malta, ia bens nomen scriptum, quo nemo novit nesi ipse, et vestitus erat veste aspersa sanguine, et vocatur nomen eius verbum de et exercitus qui sunt in celo, sequebantur eium in equis albis, vestiti vicino albo et mundo, et de orre eius prosidit gladiu, gladius ex utraque parte acutus, ut in ipso percutiat gentes, et ipse regat ias in virga feria, et ipse calcat torcular, vini furoris ire de omnipotentis, et habet in vestimento, et in femore suo scriptum, rex regum et dominus dominantium. would turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. Today we will be in both chapters 19 and 20. It was earlier this week as I was looking back at this text and uh, several, several weeks ago, uh, maybe even months ago now, <clears throat> I had kind of laid out the, the structure for these 10 weeks of the book of Revelation, and at the time, I, I said to others and thought to myself, this is going to be challenging, right? Getting through these 22 chapters in just 10 weeks, even in the, the very first sermon I shared with you that I could not find any other book or pastor who had preached through this book of the Bible in any less than 13 weeks, and the guy that did that did it in 13 one-hour sermons none of which have I preached one hour, despite what you might think. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I remember thinking then, and this is gonna be really challenging to, to squeeze in some of these chapters together. And earlier this week, I thought, why did I do this to myself? Because <laughs> it's, it's my fault, I, I did it. Um, I, I trust that it is because the Lord had a plan for us today to hear from both chapters 19 and 20. 
Uh, there is a lot to try to unpack in these two and in like much of the rest of the study, we will not be able to, to get to all of the details, but I am confident that God's word will prove sufficient for us today and by his spirit that we will be convicted and encouraged to give him the praise that he most richly and rightly deserves. So if you, if you do that, then if you are already there, we'll get to reading it in just a minute, but, uh, and it's a great place to discuss or consider the victory that is found in Christ alone. Want you, if, if you think, if you remember nothing else about today, I want you to know that Christ wins and, and has won, right? Like we're living in his victory now. So I will, I will be upfront with you that, that most of, as I said, most people do not try to combine chapters 19 and 20 when they're preaching through Revelation. Uh, part of that is because chapter 20 is, is filled with one of the most disputed and discussed portions of the book of Revelation as a whole. And I want you to know that I'm coming to you with this like, very open-handed. You'll find even quickly that while I want to speak with certainty, when certainty is available, I want to also just, I want to speak with clarity when certainty is not available. And I also want you to know, I don't know if this is comforting to you as your pastor or not, but I'm okay if I'm wrong, at least about parts of it, okay? There's going to be some parts that I will, I will make for sure that you understand, as, as best as I can, that there is no doubt. There's no question, there's no like, like I don't, I don't, I'm not curious, I don't wonder. There will be some parts to that today, but there will be some parts where I will simply have to say, I don't know, I think, or I, this is what I hold to, but if you hold to something different, and if we get to the end, if we get to Christ's throne, and he says, man, you are wrong. You know how much it's gonna bother me? Zip, zilch, nada, none, like, okay. If you, like, in fact, I was studying one guy uh, who preached, like, was, was preaching through all of Revelation with one thought, like, kind of from one perspective, got to Revelation 20 and changed his mind. I'm like, that's not helping me at all, buddy. Ah. Uh, and, and again, that's okay. Like that, that's, a, that's a safe place. Like we're in a safe zone, okay? Um, but this is why the guiding definition that we've used every week becomes really, really important. Because remember again that the, the first listeners were hearing this and, and how might they be hearing it? So let's, let's look to that again. The book of Revelation is a series of apocalyptic visions intended to make known the clear promise of Christ's coming return and eternal reign as a means to offer hope, expect obedience, and inspire worship. So all of the study today, again, no matter what, remember that, that uh, we have found victory in Jesus Christ. Yesterday was Hearts of Compassion. We've already seen video, heard testimony of that. And uh, it was awesome to watch people run across the finish line, to, to sprint right at the end or to give it their best or 
Some like feeling like they were going to crawl across the end, right? It's always fun to watch people receive their medals and, and stand up here behind one, two, and three, kind of feeling like it's a podium. It's fun to watch smiles on people's faces as they celebrate these accomplishments. But the victory that was found yesterday is nothing in comparison to the victory found in Jesus Christ, who conquered death and hell and the grave. So let's jump into chapter 19, and then we'll get to chapter 20 in a minute. Everything we look at, think, think, think of this. Everything we see and hear, victory. All right? Can you all hold on to that word? Okay, two of you did. But the rest of us are going to eventually hold on to victory. So let's read Revelation 19 from the beginning. Not all of it, but just just first several verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! Smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! From the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Can you see how I could preach a whole sermon just on this? We're, not, we're like halfway through chapter, 10, chapter 19. There's enough there for one. So I got to move. I want you to know this. God deserves all worship to be given to him. All of it. God deserves all worship to be given to him. Check this out. This is the only time in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. I did not realize that until my study. So think about this. After 26 books, 18 chapters of the gospel, the good news, the the redemption being fulfilled after Jesus came to earth as the Christ child, lived a perfect life, performed miracles, died, rose again. The church begins. The gospel spreads. And we get through most of Revelation. There is a giant hallelujah after all of that. 
right? It's like it's just been building and building and building. In fact, let's do this together. Y'all didn't do so great on victory, so let's do this together. Let's together just say hallelujah. Y'all ready? Okay, okay. Okay, let's try this one more time. So on like one, two, three. Hallelujah. Whoo, like this is good. Like I, like praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means, to praise the Lord, that he is worthy for us to shout and sing and clap and raise our hands, that this one deserves all worship to be given to him. Now we have a tendency to mess that up, don't we? We find ourselves worshiping all kinds of other stuff and people and things. We even turn and look in the mirror and try to worship ourselves. We fix our eyes on us and our ways and our plans. But don't get this wrong. Everything in history and everything in our present is moving toward the praise and glory of our King. Yeah, we, we, we look at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and you see the, the picture of Christ, his coming, and you think, yeah, that's good. Like, that, that deserves a hallelujah. He didn't give one yet, right? Then and we get through the, the book of Acts and the establishment of the church and the church beginning to spread and all of these letters written to all of these people. And then you get to Revelation and there's just not enough to hold it in anymore. They say, they say hallelujah. It seems as, I mean, when this kind of description, right, where there is, uh, it says like there's a roar of many waters, it's, it sounds like mighty peals of thunder, but it's really just the cries of the word hallelujah. That's some kind of loud, isn't it? Ever been in your house when the thunder, like, happens so much that, that the, the stuff on the walls shake? That's what I imagine. I don't know about the walls in heaven, but I imagine me shaking. The sound of the, the voice of people crying out. Angels, elders, giving him the glory that he deserves. And if it's already moving this way, doesn't it make sense that we would go ahead and join him? I'd rather not wait. Right? Like, if that's where we're headed, we're headed to the, the shouts and singing of, of the praise of our king. Why wait? Right? After this, I heard, verse, verse 1, in a loud voice, crying out, Hallelujah. So after this, note here that this is after. After what? After the previous two chapters that we just talked about last week, of the, the pleasures of the world and the persecution from the world, God is saying that we, his children, his sons and daughters, do not find deep satisfaction, pleasure, joy in the world. We find our deepest satisfaction, our deepest, greatest pleasure, and our fullness of joy in Christ and in his worship. See, joy was on display yesterday. Not at the finish line. I mean, there was some happy there. 
And not really even when the bank account of Hearts of Compassion fundraised money went up. It was seen on the stage as families stood here to celebrate where they are in the process of adoption. Right? There was a lot of joy there. Satisfaction was found in the completion of the story. Not just the means to the end itself. As children are being celebrated for being brought home to a, to a family. But, but don't misunderstand me. This is satisfying and, and it is joy-filled for us as believers, but it is because it is a picture of our adoption as children of God. We resonate with adoption stories differently because adoption stories are our stories. I've lived with my biological family my whole life, man, uh uh you're a follower of Christ, Romans tells us that we've been adopted into his family, that we are heirs with Christ, called now children of God and we, sons and daughters, and we get to call him Abba, Father. We come to him in this way because we have been brought into his family, not because of something that we have done, not because something that we have deserved, but because he chose to rescue us, bring us into his family. Our deepest satisfaction is not just found in the means to the end, but in the end itself. That is why seeing the end, i.e. victory, now makes all the difference in the world. That's, oh, that's what I desire for us at Colonial Heights. May God give us such satisfaction enjoyment in him and in singing his praises that we will be overwhelmed each week when we gather in this place over and over and over. That if it's a new song or an old song, that we will sing it loud with delight in our hearts because he is worthy of this worship. John Piper says that worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to the Babylonian ways. We will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. Corporate worship is the flagrant open enjoyment of God in the midst of a very seductive Babylonian culture. I love that idea that corporate worship is flagrant. Right? It's, it's just abundant. We're letting everybody else know who our king is. See, we can enjoy it because the victory belongs to him, Right? Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
That's not just found in Revelation 19, that's Revelation 7, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belong to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 12, I heard a loud voice saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He wins. This is his victory. So when you're wondering how this ends up, he wins. This is a celebration, church. There should be a lot of smiles in the room right now. Right? He wins. And so there is also the, not just the celebration of victory, but the continuation of victory. So now turn to chapter 20. We'll come back to a part of chapter 19 in just a little bit, but I want us to, to jump to chapter 20. And I think you'll see why after we get there. Beginning in verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In just these few verses, John references a thousand years six different times. I want to explain with brevity and with as much clarity as possible this next portion. And I want to do that uh, in a similar way, uh, the breakdown that, that David Platt had in his sermon, I liked how he, um, he broke this down. And I, this is where I come with open hands. So he, he and now I say, this is the category of what I don't know for certain. Everybody okay with that? So there's gonna be some questions you have that I don't have the answer to. There's some different ways you can interpret it, and that's okay. So what I don't know for certain, when, right? We have, we have 
been talking about throughout this series. If this is your first Sunday, you have not heard this, but uh, we've been talking about that there's two ways to read Revelation. Many people read it chronologically. You just read it like it's a timeline, just reading through it. We've been talking about it in this series as though you read it cyclically, right? So I've been teaching that throughout this. That is, that we've, I've been reading it cyclically, and I understand that many of you don't read it that way. Again, it is okay that we disagree on that. So if you read Revelation chronologically, you will believe that Revelation 19 happens, Jesus returns, and then the like, kind of next step, you get to chapter 20, down on the timeline, Satan is bound and Christians will reign with Christ for a thousand years. If you read this cyclically, as I do, then this is a repeating the same battle that is in chapter 16, right? Remember, we kind of come to things again in the cyclical reading. This would be the stance of those who are described as amillennialist. Now, you might not even know anything about all the ists, and that's okay as well. Which leads to this question, okay? If you're that, how long is this? This is something else. I, it's in the category of things I do not know for certain. You might say, well, sounds really obvious. It says a thousand years. So is it a literal thousand years or is it a figurative number like much of the rest of Revelation is figurative? Two possibilities. Also, what I don't know for certain, what and where? Is it a physical resurrection of Christians to reign on earth, or is it a spiritual resurrection of Christians to reign in heaven? Now, some of you right now, like your eyebrows are doing this. So I want you to imagine how long my eyebrows have been like this. <laughs> okay? And again, it's okay. It's okay that these are just some of the questions in this one passage. Again, I told you I used David Platt here. He says, you combine all of that with the other things you read in the New Testament, it gets all the more interesting. Parts of the New Testament talk about the end of the world, worldwide preaching of the gospel, salvation of Israel, great tribulation, coming of the Antichrist, the rapture, Christian meeting Jesus in the air upon his return. We think, well, how do all those things fit in this picture? It's like a jigsaw puzzle with all these different pieces and we're trying to figure out how they all come together. And right now, all kinds of Christians have all kinds of different pictures at the end of their puzzle. So, this, I, I think that some of you have been wondering maybe all along, what do you think, man? Like, you just keep telling us of all the different ways it could be, whatever. Uh, and again, it's okay if we disagree on this. What I think I know for now is that Christ came and Satan is bound, okay? Meaning that there's only, there's only one other person in Scripture, that, in the New Testament, that uses this phrase, that Satan being bound, and that's Jesus in the Gospels. So he does it several times, one time particularly in Matthew chapter 12, he's giving a... a like a parable, and he says, can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Same word. This binding of a strong man, strong man being Satan. Jesus is binding that strong man, showing authority over the earth. 
Now remember, this book is written to a suffering church, persecuted church. They are being reminded. This, is, this would have to be encouraging for them. They are being reminded that the persecution from this world and the seduction of this world are already defeated. Right? If, this, if you read this this way, the, the victory is not just to come. The victory has happened. Jesus' death then was not a victory for Satan, but yet another blow on the path to complete victory over sin and hell and death for all eternity. This is why I do believe in the things that I think I know on this day. We are in the millennium. This may seem really difficult to believe, because if you hear that, you think, well, how, how? If Satan is bound, then why is there still sin abounding? Why is, that, why is that ongoing? But take note that while there is still sin, there is also still sin restrained, right? There, we're not all sinning all the time. God's, God's common grace still keeps some people, even lost people, from actively, currently, constantly sinning. So this is not a picture of Satan completely cast out yet. But instead, it's one of his restriction. I want you to, to note this, even in the book of Romans. Not that we will one day be conquerors, but that we are more than conquerors now. Right, Romans 8, 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Christ is not defeated and neither are his children. We must keep preaching this gospel to all who have never heard. We must take the truth to the lost, the truth that Jesus reigns, that Jesus wins to our neighborhoods. And we must be compelled to forsake everything else and do whatever it takes to make his name known in all the earth. Christ, here's the other thing. Christ will come again and Satan will be obliterated. That completion will happen, right? This is, in fact, in some ways, like no matter what, that's coming. He's, he, he's thrown into the lake of fire and that's it for him. So before we even move on to the, the next category, there's, or the next point, whatever, um, this is what I know for sure. Don't you like that part? I gave you the stuff I don't know at all, stuff I think maybe right now. How about stuff we know? Y'all like that part? Whew, me too, let's get there. God wins. I know that God wins. And I know that Satan loses. Like, it's not a tie. That's the worst, right? It's not that. God wins, Satan loses, and the gospel continues to advance. This is promised to us in Scripture so we can, now, this is our part in it, right? Our job then, if we know the gospel advances, then church, let's do the work of the church. Let's advance the gospel for the glory of God because Christ, we know this, Christ will return. So when we say, come Lord Jesus, he says, okay, right? And judgment will happen. God wins. Satan loses. The gospel advances. Christ returns. And judgment happens. Let's rest there. 
And again, I, I don't want to downplay all of that other stuff because it, it, it's, it's fine and worthwhile for us to consider. But I want to upplay his victory. I want us to walk away today with, okay, maybe there's a little bit, man, I wonder about this, but walk away today saying there is victory in Jesus. And he has all glory and all power and all honor is deserved for him because he wins it all. So let's think then, if this judgment is happening, think about the condemnation from victory, the condemnation of victory. Keep going in chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone will be judged. You might be saying, hey, did I just hear that right? Or, or are we let in heaven based on our deeds and actions that are written down somewhere? To be abundantly clear, absolutely not. John is arguing here that people are received into heaven based solely on the work of Christ. In his death on the cross, his atonement for our sin. Our actions are merely a display of faith in Christ. So maybe today you need to be asking yourself, are you displaying such faith in Christ? If you look at your life and it, it doesn't reflect that, then maybe you aren't actually his follower, right? Think about it. Like, does your worship reflect faith in Christ? Does your giving reflect faith in Christ? Does your care for orphans and widows reflect your faith in Christ? How are you specifically caring for those who cannot care for themselves? Does your marriage reflect faith? Is your marriage a reflection of the sacrificial and humble message of the gospel? Does your obedience to your parents reflect faith in Christ? Maybe you've not actually ever turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. And so I want, I want you to hear this. Judgment is coming because judgment is deserved. We deserve, like there's a holy God and we are wicked people. We have we've fallen short of his glory. And we fail over and over and over. But by his grace, he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and die a death that you and I deserve. Carrying the punishment for us. What scripture tells us is that we would repent or turn away from our sin and our self and instead trust in Jesus Christ, that we will be saved. Saved from what? That hell and death and eternal punishment separated from him. So even before we do anything else, trust in this Jesus. Right where you sit, call out to him and say, I believe that I am a sinner and I need you to save me, to rescue me. Please, Forgive me of my sin. I, I trust in you and will follow your lordship.
I will do whatever it is you say. You see, as we think about the celebration of victory and we think about the continuation of victory, how it just moves on, and then we think about this judgment, the condemnation of victory, I want us to conclude our time by considering the Christ of victory. Now turn back to 19. I don't know if you have to turn your page. It's going to be verse 11. I want you to hear how Jesus, the Christ, is described here. And I think you'll see why we waited to the end to come back to this. It says, then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Jesus that everyone expected to come when he came like a baby. Right? Everybody was, was waiting for this one. In fact, there are thousands of Jews today still waiting. They've missed it. Because the first time he came, he came humble, meek, mild, little baby. Humble, displaying that over and over and over. Never sinned, never did wrong, never thought wrong. Perfect. When he comes back, there will be no doubt, right? Those who've doubted, maybe that's not really how, how it is. No, he'll, he'll make it real clear. He's not just riding on a donkey this time. He comes in on the white horse. He is faithful and true, holding fast to all of his promises, he is the righteous judge. Isn't that good news? He is right in his justice. He's the messianic warrior, the promised one who now will, will not just, uh, I think about a warrior who often, like, uh, they, take, they take hard licks, right? Like, not all warriors win every time. Like, this one will win, no doubt, no question. He sees all, knows all, and judges all. That's why his eyes are like a flame of fire. 
He's crowned many times over with diadems all over his head. And one crown is not enough for this king. He's mysterious. He's got a name that nobody even knows. It's like it's too good for us to, to speak or to say or to write. He is the very word of God. John, John already told us that, hadn't he? The beginning was the word. The word was God and the word was with God. He is the conqueror. I think back to Exodus 15. The Lord is a warrior and mighty is his name. He is the conqueror. He is the ruler. And don't, who don't miss this. He is king of all kings and he is Lord of all lords. This is the one that we follow. Now again, I want you to, I want you to hear this. If you don't know this Jesus, know him now. I'm pleading with you. Like, I don't know how to, to beg more. Trust in this Jesus. Because there's only two sides, victory or defeat. But we, we cling to the one who we hear of Paul writing about in 1 Corinthians is thanks be to God who gives, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We get victory. We get to, to be on the winning side. So trust in him today. I plead with you. In fact, in just a minute, when we stand and sing, I wanna encourage you, like there will be some right over here to my left that would love to, to hear that, would love to pray with you, uh, share that, encourage you. But even as the musicians come, maybe it's that, maybe it's that you are on the winning side but you're living like you've lost. Right? Maybe some of those questions, your life is not reflecting that you have faith in a victorious warrior who's conquered the grave. So I wanna plead with you today to be obedient to the one who deserves our obedience. Follow his every command, his, his every charge. Give him the glory that he deserves. He deserves all glory, church. Not some, not a little bit, but all of it. So what I wanna invite us to do now, as we hear or have heard then of this victorious warrior who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that we would sing to him like he is. Like he deserves all of our praise. And, and again, we've said this before, but maybe you say singing's not for me. Well, you're gonna do it for all eternity, so you might as well get used to it. Let's, let's all be all in on giving him the glory and honor and power and praise that he deserves. So stand with me now as we sing to this one who is worthy of our praise.